Welcome to Occult of Personality, esoteric podcast extraordinaire at occultofpersonality.net. I'm your host, Greg Kaminsky, and your co-host is Rudolf Berger. This is episode number 188, featuring an interview with Aki Cedarberg about his book, Journeys in the Kali Yuga, a pilgrimage from esoteric India to pagan Europe, published by Inner Traditions. The Cult of Personality podcast is made possible by you, the listeners, and by the subscribers to the ChamberofReflection.com, our membership site, as well as all those who support us via Patreon. This episode is also generously sponsored by Grove Argentum, a grove of the goddess in New York City and a membership of the Fellowship of Isis. A Cult of Personality podcast is also sponsored by Miskatonic Books, an online store that focuses on the esoteric, occult, ceremonial magic, Freemasonry, Rosicrucianism, witchcraft, the Golden Dawn, as well as dark fantasy, classic horror, and supernatural fiction. They carry books by all your favorite esoteric publishers as well. Just visit MiskatonicBooks.com. Temple of Thelema is a true outer order of the greater mysteries, providing ceremonial initiation, structured training, and regular group work, all in conformity with the principles of the Book of the Law. An investment of time, effort, and commitment is expected from each member. Each is expected to aspire fervently to the great work, to dare with courage undaunted, to perfect that work, and ever to apply his or her best effort to effect harmony within the order and within the world in general. Founded in service to the AA, College of Thelema seeks to guide the student to an understanding of the law of Thelema. Most especially, this means a deeper understanding of oneself and of one's true will. A combination of instruction techniques is employed, including seminars, written texts, and individual work. For over 40 years, College of Thelema has published journals in the Continuum and Black Pearl, as well as several books on occult subjects maintaining high standards in Thelemic education. Visit Temple of Thelema at www.thelema.org. Anathema Publishing Limited Quality Occult Books and Contemporary Esoterica Established in 2011, Anathema Publishing aims to provide superior literature in content and form by creating a trinosophic relationship in troth and gabo between publisher, author, and reader. Anathema Publishing produces refined books for the true bibliophile on topics ranging from Gnosticism traditional craft, alchemy, hermeticism, witchcraft, to Luciferian 
Theosophy. www.anathemapublishing.com Now, in episode number 188, we're joined by writer, musician, filmmaker, and traveler from Helsinki, Finland, Aki Cedarberg. You can find him online at www.akisederberg.com as well as his Facebook author page. In addition to a Finnish language book in 2013 and 2017's Journeys in the Kali Yuga, Aki Cedarberg has also written for the Fenris Wolf book anthologies as well as several other publications. He's currently writing his next book, which is about European holy places and traditions, and will feature photography by his wife, Justine. Aki has been part of several musical groups, has released albums and films, as well as conducted exhibitions and tours, both in his homeland and abroad. He's also part of the Radio Weird podcast and regularly gives lectures and talks on various esoteric topics. I enjoyed Journeys in the Kali Yuga tremendously, in addition to feeling as though I was accompanying the author on his travels and gaining insights along the way, his razor-like commentary on the differences between modern society and esoteric spiritual tradition is both startling and welcome. Many of the conclusions Aki drew from his experiences echoed my own and reinforced the importance in my mind of authentic tradition and veneration of lineages that produce realized beings. Additionally, the way in which Cedarberg is using the wisdom he's gained to delve deeper into his own pagan tradition is inspiring. A movement from modernism to a futurism informed by authentic traditional ways is a welcome shift from New Age spirituality so prevalent in alternative circles. The intro music is Awakening by Paul Avgerinos, and the outro music is Nordic Bells by Lunar 5. Aki Cedarberg, I want to welcome you to Occult of Personality podcast, and thank you so much for joining us today to discuss your recent book, Journeys in the Kali Yuga, A Pilgrimage from Esoteric India to Pagan Europe. So it's Thank great you, to sir. speak with you. Thank you. Well, it's yes, nice welcome. to be here. Thank you. It's nice to be here and talking with the both of you. I would like to know uh, if you could tell us and the, the listeners a little bit about your background and maybe what got you started on your journey that you outline in the book. My background is I'm from Helsinki, Finland. And um, I've been involved with um, music, uh, writing, filmmaking, all kinds of things uh, on an external level. But on an internal level, these all of my kind of uh, things that I've been doing have been stemming from trying to find and give form to these kind of inner uh, landmarks, which I've seen when I've been very young. And as I tell in the book, I don't really know if these things have been dreams or visions or, or what, but I, I have these early memories uh, that fill, fill me with a sense of, of home or something like that. And then I, as I've grown older, and I mean, I mean 
grown older in the sense of from a child into a young man, then you start looking, well, what were those things and what, what are these inner things that I have inside of myself? Where can I find them in the world? And so that, that maybe on a, on a deeper level has been the source of, of what I've been doing is, is seeking uh, outer manifestations of these inner landmarks. And then in my writings and, and music and uh, various other works like film, I've, I've been trying to give form to these things a little bit, point to them. Like the, the, there's, a, there's a quote by uh, Heidegger in my book, mm-hmm. and um, I don't remember it exactly, but he says something like, in an age where there's an absence of gods or when the gods are fleeing, the poet is there at the world's night pointing at the holy. Right. So I guess pointing at this holiness with a big H, capital H, is what I've been trying to, to do. And that's been resulting now in this book that just came out. Yeah, it's really phenomenal. I just want to sort of preface our conversation here by saying that I enjoyed your book tremendously. Uh, I, I identified with a lot of the very substantial points that you made um, throughout the book, these sort of, uh, I don't, they weren't even revelations. There seemed like you realizations uh, would be a better word for it. And we'll, we'll get into them in detail, but um, it was, it's just tremendously well-written and I compliment you for uh, sharing your personal journey and not uh, creating more of the same type of uh, books that we're accustomed to as much as we love them. Uh, yours is really a breath of fresh air. Well, thank you. Definitely. I would like to just say the same in a way because we see so many books uh, come and go, and I'm sure that this is going to be one of those that will stay. Aki, I have a further question about your background. I want to dig a bit deeper. When I see on your website, it says that you have a personal family background of priests and doctors on one side and seafarers on the other, which I'm sure you're not putting there uh, by just pure coincidence. And how, how much do you think that this very mixed background, but at the same time, very mythic background, let me put it that way, um, has influenced your use and your personal path and search? I think it's influenced me a great deal. Um, I think we inherit memories and character traits and, um, and kind of tempers and even maybe a part of our soul from our ancestors. And so from my father's side, it has been dominated by priests for, for quite a long time and priests and doctors, but men, men of this, this uh, type. And from my mother's side, it has been seafarers. So it's been people with a strong sense of travel. And I can see both of those aspects very strongly in myself. I can see the longing for the holy and the, the, the will, will to dedicate oneself to 
the holy and the quest of the holy and to give form to the holy as as an inherited trait as is the 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 sea in my veins so to speak which comes from my mother's side where i i always also had a very strong wanderlust mm. and i think recently there's been a lot of scientific research on ancestral memory and how impressions and things can uh, can make an imprint on the dna of uh, of organisms which is transferred to their children uh, they've been testing this with i guess mice and uh, and they found that it actually has some scientific basis now if we look at the the older view and we don't go to science immediately which is kind of funny for esoteric people to do anyway to to just turn to like <laughs> reductionist science immediately then in in the the more nordic um spiritual tradition and in the Finnish tradition there is a thought that you are also you inherit part of your soul that there is part of your soul which comes from your ancestors or a specific ancestor and I've always felt these things within me very strongly and the older I get the more I find myself actually resembling you know my grandfather for instance, who who I never knew who died when my father was very young, but I can find a lot of uh, commonalities between our natures. And he, we even look alike, of course. And uh, But there is there is a strange kind of connection you, you find. As you get older, you get closer to your distant ancestors, in a way. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, I'd like to ask you about the realization you had when you were beginning your journey uh you were in india and in the book you write quote it all seemed hopelessly out of balance disconnected from the stark realities of life epitomizing something sadly comical about how spirituality tends to manifest in general rather than an enhancement of reality it is an escape from it unquote just wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because it it it's it really encapsulates so much of the modern spiritual landscape yeah i mean uh the, the what i was referring to in this case was that in india which is a land rife with spiritual traditions both real and completely made up the the uh amount of spiritual you know, uh, humbug is just <laughs> a thousandfold, and you find you find people that are just that they, they. It seems that they, if they are questing after some sort, of, maybe they're just questing after different things. Like I don't want to judge them too harshly because there is an aspect of of so-called spirituality which is just having some sort of higher vision which makes uh, changes on in your everyday life for the better possible and there's nothing you know wrong per se about that but they might be delusions like I'm, I'm telling this guy who just lost his dentures in the ocean and was writing about how angels you know found the dentures in the ocean and this was proof of God existing and all, all this kind of stuff so it, was, it sometimes takes a very comical tone with these things. Hmm. 
And of course, um, my my book is called Journeys in the Kali Yuga, and the Kali Yuga is considered the the fourth and final age in the cyclical uh, Indian worldview, the last of the four ages, the yugas. And the Kali Yuga is characterized by a loss of spiritual tradition, a loss of understanding of natural law and man's place in nature, and, and like a lack of loss of balance. And this loss of true spiritual life is seen not just in India, but especially in the West and really in all of the world very, very strongly, unfortunately. And I find that to be maybe the biggest reason of, of uh, the calamities and the problems that we face in the modern world is this lack of a spiritual, genuine spiritual life and a spiritual compass. Because we live in a world dominated by market men and economics and kind of like what the, the traditional Indian view would be kind of like as a lower caste ruling the whole whole uh, world, basically. Hmm. So it's no longer governed by spiritual principles or, or um, I mean, we don't even in the West, we don't even recognize spiritual uh, kind of leaders existing, I guess, in a way. I mean, I guess the, the church or something, but they've pretty much lost their power. So mm -hmm. I think, uh, yeah, this is, this is one of the, the biggest um, aspects of the modern world and the most key things about it. And, and there is a sadness about it. I mean, I cringe when I hear the word spirituality most often because it's been so hijacked by uh, fake. Aki. You just said something which I find very interesting, and I share your opinion, but I don't think it's a very uh, common knowledge here in the West when you say that there is so much spirituality going on in India. So far, everyone knows that, but there is just as much real or even more made-up traditions also in India. Usually when we hear that, we, talk, we mean that about our Western world, but visibly you've experienced the same happening in the Eastern tradition. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, India doesn't consider itself immune, immune from the Kali Yuga at all. I mean, they, they do uh, recognize this problem themselves. Their own traditions have been diluted over time. There's been the Muslim invasion of India, which was several, several hundred years which was basically trying to, you know, wipe out Hinduism. Then there was the Christian influence from the, you know, the Brits. So their, their own traditions, which are ancient and still unbroken in a way, have been diluted and corrupted over time. And India is the land of, of these old spiritual traditions, but it is also the home of probably the most amount of disingenuous spiritual traditions, because they know that the West especially is hungry for an exotic spiritual tradition and gurus and masters and wizards. And so, of course, there is a market for that. And the market keeps growing and growing. And um, there, there is so much fake uh, gurus out there, as you can ever imagine, and much more so even. <laughs> so, you know, mm -hmm. But this is this is the age. This is the age that the Shiva Puranas, for instance, speak of yeah. as the Kali Yuga, where 
you know, the teachings are sold and there's a lot of, uh, it says in the Shiva Puranas that a lot of people from low castes who put on robes and pretend to be Brahmins, for instance. Mm-hmm. So, so there is like, you know, that this is very well understood even within India itself. And I'd also go f- farther and say that even the, the traditions which stem from authentic sources, uh, not necessarily all the individuals involved in a particular esoteric school or tradition or lineage in India, they're not necessarily good guys, even though they belong to a genuine spiritual lineage or tradition. They might be charlatans at the same time while belonging to a genuine lineage. So I hope we haven't we seen that elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it does sound familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Is may I just add one more question? Of course. Um, Aki, you have uh, written a first book in Finnish language only, I believe, which is called, I think, Travels to India and Nepal. What uh, what brought you to that part of the world and its spirituality in the first place? How did you, I mean, how did you come from your Helsinki tradition to be interested and more than that, to work in that tradition? Well, um, I when I was young, I became very interested. Per, well, firstly, I, I grew up rejecting Christianity in its very like lukewarm uh, form, which I grew up with. Uh, Helsinki and Finland and Scandinavia, you know, the Christianity hasn't really got rooted very well here. So it's a very secu- secular society. But it's nominally Christian. So I rejected the Christianity and started looking for something more authentic. And of course, then I very quickly came to my own traditions, my own cultural roots and sources, which are in in Finland and in Northern Europe more generally. And um, when I was... um, Maybe 18 years old, I spent a longer period living in England as a part of a, a heathen brotherhood where I, we were trying to live out these kinds of things on a practical level. Like if, if we believe in uh, or if we hold these uh, European spiritual traditions in high esteem, then how do how do we live them in the, the modern world? And so that was a very good and formative uh, experience and uh, influence on me, and we visited a lot of holy sites throughout uh, Albion, England, and and so forth. But being there, I also discovered the main problem with the European, or on a larger scale, Western uh, spiritual traditions, which is that we lack authority and we lack an unbroken line of oral teachings. We have a bunch of uh, very dubious individuals claiming one one sort of infernal mandate to the to the you know next angelic conversation, and we have a bunch of individuals and their experiences of being told about things, but we really don't have a living tradition as there is in India, 
And so when I went to India, I was looking for something that would be more uh, authentic and unbroken and where these these things would still be alive in a way where they perhaps are not in the West anymore. So that was my main reason for going to India because in a way the Indian religious and spiritual traditions are the foremost examples of a pagan tradition living still and being alive in our age because it really goes back it it has said the it has uh, you know survived throughout time and not broken you know it hasn't been completely broken as as one can say that in many ways our traditions have been mm-hmm. thank you aki i would like to pick up that thread a little bit i agree completely with your assessment of the situation in terms of the authentic, unbroken lineages, the oral traditions. But it seems like there are also other aspects that are tied into that, which we have also uh, lost in the West somewhat. Uh, Maybe not conceptually, but practically for sure. Uh, For instance, um, in the East, along with these... Uh, lineages and their oral traditions, um, they have typically some sort of view or perspective on reality that informs the initiate pretty much right at the start. So they're, they're not trying to develop from a random perspective or at least a non-standardized perspective and I think what sort of goes along with that is the generally the view that is taught and held is a Gnostic or a realized view a self-realized view so that that is in in I don't know about every tradition but in many traditions it's it's not it's considered like the fruit of the practice. So you'd have uh, the teacher or the guru is not just somebody who's done the practice, but they've succeeded in the practice and their success is marked by self-realization or gnosis. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that. And do you feel like that uh, lack of gnosis in the West is uh in some ways uh can sh- like the the real root of the issue in terms of our s- the poverty of these traditions in many ways uh that's that's hard to say uh, i think there there still is gnosis in the west and i think there there always will be individuals possessing gnosis i think it's more uh a collective cultural shift in consciousness, which has happened over time and throughout various influences on Western culture. You know, you cannot really escape the the influence of Christianity, for instance. The when I look at Finnish history and how Christianity arrived to uh, Finland 
you know, the, the first mission they had was to cut down all the holy trees and the sacred groves here and to cut the connection that people had with this, this kind of natural gnosis that had always been there. And so uh, that's, that's what I think about it. I think it's, it's a long process of uh, historical things influencing the thing, uh, the, the development of the West. And then, of course, after Christianity, a bunch of materialistic doctrines and ideologies which have reduced man into an economic, purely economic creature and explain the world in that way, which really are only a continuation of, of a monotheistic worldview. I don't know if that answers your questions, but, but uh, that's yeah. kind of, yeah. I would like now to ask you a question about the topic of the Kali Yoga, not yet about the book in detail, but it seems to me, I might be wrong, but I get the impression that the term Kali Yoga and what it means has been around quite a bit lately. And of course, I'm sure this is linked to the fact that many people feel like we live in a moment of time, a moment of human history, which is when decline is in the center of thought, etc., etc. So that fits well. But maybe I'm wrong. Why do you think Kali Yuga has recently become more of a topic generally? And or maybe it hasn't, and it's just me who has only seen it now? What do you think? Uh, I think maybe it's, I mean, it's certainly not my idea that this is somehow, you know, I'm not the first person to write about uh, us living in the Kali Yuga. Maybe it's the fact that things are kind of... Um, accelerating and there seems to be an, an escalation of these symptoms of the Kali Yuga. Perhaps mm. that is it. Perhaps we see these things happening very rapidly and quickly, let's say in the last, you know, 20, 30 years or something. Mm. Uh, we see an escalation of these things. Maybe it's also that we, maybe there's more access nowadays to writers that have pointed out uh, this Kali Yuga factor, you know, in the past. I mean, even rest Western esoteric writers have, have uh, referred to us living in the Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and of course, maybe, you know, our knowledge of the Indian uh, religious and spiritual traditions have increased. So we have become more aware of, of uh, things which we wouldn't have necessarily in the past. But I know what you mean. And I, I have, I've seen the same tendency to speak about it because it is it does seem to be very poignant i don't know how many people actually study what the kali yuga is about in from the you know original sources sure because i think if they would they would be uh, surprised by how <laughs> accurate and detailed and in-depth uh, these descriptions are yes and uh, and uh, how much they fit our time like it is pretty stunning like I recommend reading, uh, for those uh, listening who are interested in this subject, uh, there is a, a writer called um, Alain Danielou, 
and he was a, a Bretonese um, musicologist, indologist, uh, writer, artist, photographer, uh, who lived in the early uh, 20th century. And he traveled throughout India and took photos and eventually ended up moving there and really became accepted into the caste system and became a, a proper Hindu in a way. And he has written a lot of books that I think are very reliable because they don't go to these secondary sources written by you know British authors, but they go to the actual uh, Sanskrit sources themselves. And he has written a book called While the Gods Play. And this book is, is specifically about the Kali Yuga and its manifestations. And it contains a lot of um, these translations of the Puranas, which describe this age of, uh, of strife. So I would recommend that to, to everyone who wants to understand it a little better. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about your experience in India. Um, you joined a, an order of, I don't know if I, it would be proper to call them monks, or I think the word is sadhus, but I think this is a pretty fascinating aspect of your story that you became so engrossed in this world and actually took part in, in the initiation. Yeah, um, I'd preface it by saying that um, I st no matter what critiques I, I say about India and these things, that I still hold my initiation that I received uh, into, into this tradition, a great gift and a talisman and one that I will always hold very special and, and dear to me. And of course, when you go to India and you start seeking out these things, it's not like you can just go somewhere and, and join something. I mean, it's, it's really like a quest to try to find something that's authentic. And as a foreigner, of course, you're completely hindered because you, you don't belong to the caste system. You don't master... Hindi uh, customs and culture and language properly. Th there are, you know, everything stacked up against you. And, and the difference between uh, so-called Hinduism or the, the, you know, even these Hindu uh, esoteric orders is that they really don't solicit members. They don't try to convert people, you know, on the contrary. They, they're not looking for people to join their, their thing. Because they are Hinduism essentially is the folkish traditions uh, and spiritual traditions of those people. So I was very lucky to get my kind of foot in the door to this very strange and bizarre and magical world of the Juna Akara. And they are called sannyasis, and sannyasis means renunciate, and renunciate. Uh, renunciation is the fourth, fourth and final period uh, of a Hindu life because everything in in this cyclical worldview has its inner and outer equivalent. So you have four ages of cosmological ages, like the Kali Yuga is the last one, 
but you also have the four ages within a human life. And so the last life is renunciation of the world. And so these sadhus are renunciates. They have renounced the ordinary world completely. They have cut away their ties with caste and their previous life and careers and families. And they have become uh, sort of members of the extraordinary world and where they become a member of a lineage, they get a new name, they get a first name, and then they get a last name, and the last name is the name of the lineage. And uh, I was very lucky to receive a kind of small initiation into, into their world, which just, in practice, it meant that I was welcomed at their camp. And, uh, and I'd like to point out that I, I didn't go through with the uh, so-called Panch Guru initiation, which means that you have five gurus who give you initiation, each one after the other, and you become a proper Naga Sanyasi, uh, a proper, you know, Sadhu, Naga Sadhu, Baba. That is not what I, I got. But to, to, uh, under two. Uh, Greg, are you there? I am here. Yeah. Aki, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear us. I, I just heard it cut out. Yeah. Um, well, we heard you until you said you have not received the full initiation of the uh, Sadhu Baba. And then it yes. cut out. Maybe you can say again what you said after that? Yeah, I said, uh, as such, I received a kind of uh, diksha, which means initiation, and in which you receive a name and you receive... A kind of, um, it is a kind of talisman that you receive that grants you access to this world. It establishes a connection, a link between you and the tradition, which gives you that initiation. But it is not an initiation into full Naga Baba, which is uh, called Panch Guru initiation, the, the initiation of five gurus. If I could just ask a follow-up question. To those of us, which I'm assuming is probably 99% of the people listening have never maybe even been to India and certainly not to a Kumbh Mela. And I'm just wondering if you can give us, uh, tell us what that is and if you can give us any impressions you have of just being in the camp during that time and, and what it must have been like to be there. Yeah, the Kumbh Mela is the largest uh, spiritual, religious, or magical gathering of human beings on planet Earth since time immemorial. It is a huge fair filled with uh, tricksters and tantrics and, and magicians and magic tricks and, uh, and wisdom and folly. And it is a time when, on a cosmic level, according to the myth, there are drops of Amrit, which is the nectar of immortality, uh, which are dropped into the river Ganga. And people, during these astrological times, it is said that people can uh, bathe in the water of the Amrit and, you know, be blessed by this elixir of immortality, which has, has been said to have, you know, uh, uh, magical properties on various levels. So it is all these Hindus making pilgrimages from very far away, millions, I mean, tens of millions of people gathering 
at the riverbank at the same time and then uh, taking a bath at the same time. So it is very crazy and chaotic and, uh, and, and just very wild. And of course, then the Kumbamelas are dominated by these Naga Babas, or not just the Naga Babas, but Sadhus in general, who set up different camps of... Uh, so the Sadhus are arranged in these different orders, and all these orders set up their own camps and temples by the river, and then they sit there in these camps and uh, preside over what's happening. And it is a, a time when all these magical bonds are strengthened. So all the Babas meet each other and they are given mass initiations to a bunch of people. And uh, it is really a crazy, crazy time. And all the, the Naga Babas smoke charas, you know, uh, cannabis all the time. And so it is really like a Shiva's stoner party. It, it's just full of these coughing sadhus everywhere, blowing out blue-gray smoke through through their hands. And um, it's like, yeah, this is a very cheesy reference, but everybody has seen the first Star Wars movie. And there's the scene where they're like in this bar and there's all these like different cosmic creatures in the bar and this weird band sitting and playing and everything. So it's kind of like that, but times a thousand or something it's just a very very strange like storybook world and uh yeah it, it was amazing to to be there quite frightening and overwhelming at times but also quite uh, amazing and really something quite ancient it felt like it's fascinating yeah thank, thank you, you. may i return this to the kali yuga as a term you already told our listeners that it is one of the four ages of the of of the universe or of the of the world of our world, but I think it, at least in some traditions, and I'm not sure which one you follow, um, it has started already something like five thousand years ago, hasn't it? Yes. So uh, one could think uh, when we what we just said, you and I before that the period in which we live in is a difficult one. Of course, it was much better 100 years ago, and it was even better 200 years ago. But when we talk about Kali Yuga, we talk really about the age of our world as history knows it. So the last 5,000 years is basically from ancient Egypt or ancient Babylon until now. So how would you interpret it that? That's the whole known human history being part of Kali Yuga? Yeah, that's a very good question. But I think this is really something that some Hindu scholar would be a, a better person to answer, honestly <laughs> speaking. I mean, uh, what I understand about it is that the biggest difference between the monotheistic view of history that we hold in the West this progressive view of history where it's it's a linear development from kind of primal beginnings to towards a golden age, whether that golden age is reached through uh, commerce or, or some ideology triumphing or Christ returning or something, but it's always like people nowadays think that we're developing through some some better thing. It's it's we're progressing. But the 
idea of these ages is that we are we are kind of it's the opposite we it's as we are coming from a golden age and we are going through a darker age of mm -hmm. of uh, of ruin eventually so the cyclical worldview is really has like there are different starting and ending points in these these things but as in as far as the timeline goes as said i think a hindu scholar would be a, a better person to ask about that and i'm unfortunately not uh, a hindu scholar as such okay thank you aki i'd like to ask you about your coming to the understanding that real profound knowledge and understanding requires an immersion into experience. And if I could just read this from your book, because I found this rather elegant and eloquent. To truly know something, one needs to be within touching distance of the thing one desires to know. Insight and knowledge do not require beliefs or ideologies, as those things can indeed just make them even more shrouded. Insight and knowledge can be gleaned from written words, but profound knowledge requires participation in first-hand experience. It requires one to have sense experience of the object of knowledge beyond the realm of the mere intellect. The knowledge I acquired from delving into the traditional Indian esoteric tradition I learned via personal experience. It has required participation and usage for it to become active. It is also nothing I could fully explain in written words even if I tried. And such knowledge requires pilgrimage. To have knowledge of the source, one has to travel to the source or be satisfied by the streams that flow from that source, eventually becoming more polluted, more impure as they get farther away from it. To truly know the story, one has to become the story. Just very profound. I wonder well, if thank you, could you. Just, thank you. I wonder if you could just comment on that a little bit. <laughs> well, that kind of says it all. I mean, uh, this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm always wary of giving interviews because uh, Ernst Hemingway said that the writer doesn't talk, he writes. And when I hear you re reading those things, that's, that's really what I think about it. And I'm always fearful that whatever I might add might just kind of, that I might, am I really bringing anything kind of new into, into this? But yeah, I, I would think that if, if you look around and, and you look in the West, especially people have a lot of trust in ideas and kind of things coming in the abstract and from afar and it is really a very different, you know, thing to, to really know something, to really know it so that you can touch it. And this is why, this is one of the reasons why uh, when I got the opportunity to delve, when I got my foot in the door to this very extraordinary world of the Indian spiritual tradition, I understood that this was my, really my chance to get to know it. And I have to then go there and and do it and be within touching distance of these people <clears throat> on a very concrete level that it's not enough to to read books and and to see things from afar because seeing things from afar or from a distance 
you know, you, you kind of create half of the image there and you can end up with a very idealized version of reality. But when you're at a touching distance of something, then you truly will know that thing, just as you would with a, a, a real human being. I mean, who can really know somebody through mere, you know, messages or emails or, or phone calls? You really have to, to even to get to know people, you have to be at touching distance from those things. Yeah, very wise words. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Rudolf, did you have any other questions? Uh, I just wanted to underline that the book itself, as small as it is, uh, and I think it's about 180 pages or so, it's extremely well done, not just from the content, but also the way with the photos, I think, which are also made by you, Aki. And the, the whole thing, how it's set up, I just find for a small soft bound book it's an extraordinary object i just needed to say that well thank you and if i may add to this that the uh the, the book that i'm working on now uh the next book will not be so small because it will be a very a big kind of coffee table book and it's really a continuation of this book because as this book kind of ends in the homecoming then I've uh, explored, well, what does this mean? What, are the, what is the holy in, in Europe, in what I consider my spiritual homeland? Mm -hmm. And so my next book is about that, and it's, it's uh, tentatively titled uh, Holy Europe. And it's a delving into these various uh, holy places in and throughout Europe, from the north to the very south, to Italy and to Portugal, and all the way from Iceland and Finland and Scandinavia and so forth. And uh, this will be a very big book with uh, beautiful photographs taken by my wife and companion, uh, Justine, with whom we've traveled now for many years across Europe in search of these holy places and traditions. And so... Uh, this is the, the thing that I'm working on now. Well, that sounds Great. wonderful. Yes. We look forward to it. When do you think you, it will be out? Well, uh, it's, I'm, I'm writing it in Finnish right now because I have a, a publishing contract for it and it should be ready in the spring. But we will see because this is really one of those works that I could just write the rest of my life you know, this book, mm. <laughs> and just keep writing. So I think I'll, I'll have to have it finished kind of soon, and then immediately after the Finnish edition is done, uh, there will come an English edition. But I would give it a few years. Great. We'll have to uh, wait patiently for it then. Yeah. Aki Cedarberg, Journeys in the Kali Yuga, Pilgrimage from Esoteric India to Pagan Europe. It's been a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. I feel like uh, just discovering your work, I've uh, found an important voice uh, in the esoteric world, and it's uh, really been uh, great to talk with you about it. 
It's been a pleasure speaking with the both of you, and I appreciate your uh, podcasts and efforts, and I really enjoyed this conversation, and hopefully I haven't rambled on into two strange alleyways with these uh, long monologues. So, no, I like really... the, the strange alleyways very much. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Definitely. Maybe hey, you thanks. could just uh, remind people where they can find you online. Uh, yes, I have a website at akisederberg.com and on Facebook I have an author page that people can subscribe to that I post regularly things on about interviews and future projects and ongoing projects and appearances and so forth. And so those two places I would recommend that people keep looking in. Excellent. Thank you again, Aki. Thank you. Thank you, you Aki. Kitos. In the Chamber of Reflection, Aki Cedarberg, Rudolph, and I continue the interview. Aki describes the spiritual desolation of modern secular society and his hopes to inspire people to reanimate the spiritual legacy of their ancestors. He also stresses that pilgrimage is not complete without homecoming. Join us for that inspired conversation. I'd like to remind you that although you're able to listen to this podcast at no charge, it costs time and money to create. We ask you to support our efforts in the creation of future podcasts by joining the membership section at chamberofreflection.com or subscribing via Patreon at patreon.com slash personality. And if you're already supporting the show or have done so in the past, my heartfelt thanks and I salute you. Thanks again for listening, and until next time.
Thank、you